If you know the story of Moses in the first chapters of the book of Exodus, then you know the spoilers for all the rest of the book. Because what happened to Moses after he left Egypt? He found food and water in the wilderness. He had to fight off enemies at the source of this water. He met Jethro, who provided food and fellowship. Now, in these last few chapters, we've seen Israel experience the same things. They found food and water in the wilderness. They're fighting the Amalekites at Rephidim, the place where they got water. And they're benefiting from Jethro's hospitality as he helps Moses. Head first, then body. The life of Moses is being relived in the life of Israel. So, what should we expect now in the order of this story? What happened next for Moses? Well, he went to the mountain, and God spoke to him from the fire in the midst of the bush. And God gave him a mission that would define the rest of his life, define his very identity. That same thing will now happen to Israel. Today, we come to a greater burning bush, a greater word from the midst of the fire, we come to the appearance of Yahweh atop Mount Sinai and the giving of the Ten Commandments to Israel. As we do that, let me pray for us. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, help us to see with eyes of faith the glory of your appearing. Help us to hear with open ears the word of life that you give to your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we'll be in Exodus 19 and 20 today. Exodus 19 tells us that Israel encamped in the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to hear from God. And just as back in Exodus 3, the text told us God called to him out of the bush, notice that verse 3 of our passage echoes that language. Yahweh called him out of the mountain. The author wants us to connect these two events. Yahweh says to Israel at Mount Sinai, verse 4, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. Now, we need to hang out here for a moment uh, because these verses are so crucial. At my seminary, all students had to memorize this passage of Scripture. And this is Yahweh defining the identity of His people Israel. He's defining what their relationship to Him will be. He's defining what their relationship to the rest of the world will be. So we need to have a firm grasp of this to understand the rest of Exodus, indeed to understand the rest of the Bible. Now I want you to not only pay attention to the phrases here, but I also want you to note the order in which Yahweh speaks them. What is the first thing Yahweh says at Mount Sinai? You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. The very first thing he mentions is salvation. And it is a salvation that has already been completed, isn't it? 
They've already come out of Egypt. He's already brought them through the Red Sea. We have to see that God's gracious salvation always comes first in his dealings with humanity. Now, I mean, Israel's about to receive an exhortation to obedience. Israel is about to receive what we commonly call the Ten Commandments. Israel is about to be given lots of laws that should be followed, things to do, things not to do. And the world often sees Christianity in this one-sided way. If you obey the rules, then you can be a Christian, right? If you do this and this and this, and you don't do that and that and that, that's what makes you a Christian, and that's how you earn salvation, right? The world sees Christianity that way because Christians often see Christianity that way. We act as if that is the way of salvation. Do enough, and you will earn God's salvation. But that's not the way God does things. That's not the way the Bible presents things. Don't get the order confused here, because it's important. Deliverance always comes first. Salvation always comes first. And then obedience follows after, as a grateful heart responds to the gracious deliverance God has already accomplished. The work of God is always prior to the work of man. Of course it is. He's the creator. He is the beginning and the source of all things. So our work will always and can only be a response to what God has done. And so it is here at Sinai. The first word God speaks recounts this deliverance that he has graciously brought to Israel. He didn't deliver them because they had obeyed enough or because they were good enough or because they had accomplished enough. I mean, Israel has actually been pretty faithless this whole time, haven't they? So it can't be that they have earned God's salvation. No, God freely, graciously chooses to deliver them because he had already decided to do so, because he had already promised to do so. And he is a covenant-keeping God. So note that everything at Sinai starts with and is built upon the foundation of God's gracious and already accomplished salvation of Israel. Then we come to verse 5. Now, therefore. So that means whatever he's going to say next follows from is based upon the already accomplished work of deliverance. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, not to belabor the point, but notice this is not, if you will obey, I will save you from Egypt. No, salvation is already accomplished, and it is that accomplished salvation that now inspires a response from Israel. And the right response is obedience and faithfulness to the God who has saved them. And what will Israel become if they faithfully respond to the deliverance God has brought them? Verse 5, you shall be to me a tr my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. 
That means that out of all the people groups in the world at that time, the descendants of Jacob would uniquely belong to Yahweh. He's God of all, he says, but Israel will uniquely belong to him. That he will be specially concerned with their protection and their provision and their blessing. And they would specially represent Yahweh to the rest of the world. How else will Israel be defined? Verse 6, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What does that mean, that they're to be a kingdom of priests? The Hebrew word translated priest just means household servant. A priest is a household servant. Now, it takes on a technical sense when Aaron and his sons are appointed as household servants of God's house, God's tabernacle, later on in this book. But basically, priests maintain God's house, and they help others draw near to God at his house. They help others follow God's house rules and approach him in the way that he prescribes. That's what priests do. So Israel is going to do that for the rest of the world. The priests of Israel serve that role for Israel. Israel serves that role for the rest of the world. Israel will build and supply and protect God's earthly house, his tabernacle, and later his temple. And by following Yahweh's word and maintaining right worship of him, as priests do, Israel will help the nations draw near to Yahweh so that they can come and worship him as well. God says they are to be a holy nation. Now, I've often suggested to you that that we should think of holiness not primarily in moral terms of right and wrong behavior, but we should think of holiness being about access to God. Holiness is about access to God. So anything that is going to be in God's house or is going to be used in the worship of God must be made holy through cleansing and consecration and anointing. And once something is made holy, once it's given that status, it is allowed in God's presence. So if Israel is to be a holy nation, that means Israel is being given access to God that no other nation has. Yahweh is choosing to dwell in their midst. Head first, then body. This harkens back to Moses' first encounter with God on Mount Sinai where Moses was allowed to walk unshod on holy ground. Here, Israel is being granted a holy status as well, so that they too can have this unique access to Yahweh. So at this point, God gives this statement of Israel's identity for Moses to deliver to the people. But then in verse 9, Yahweh tells Moses that he is also going to come down to speak to Israel himself. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. God speaks to the mediator while the people are in earshot so that they will trust Moses as God's representative. They will know he's not just making up all these laws he's about to give them. God speaks through him. We see the same thing happen in the ministry of Christ. The Gospels tell us that the voice of God speaks aloud. 
so that he can be heard at Jesus' baptism, at his transfiguration. He says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. That's an echo of what we have here, isn't it? God speaks from heaven to the people, authorizing Jesus as his mediator. And that shows Jesus to be the new and greater Moses, the greater prophet who will deliver God's people with a greater exodus. Now we find in verses uh, 10 through 15 that Moses has to prepare the people for the coming of the Lord to speak to them. They must wash their garments. They must consecrate themselves. They must be careful not to become ritually unclean or engage in idolatrous acts. Yahweh is coming into their midst. Then in verse 16 and following, Yahweh comes and he appears to Israel. Now it's important that we pay attention to the specific sights and sounds that are described in this appearance here. So verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. So make a mental list of the things that we see and hear when God appears on Mount Sinai. We have thunder and lightning. We have a thick cloud. We have a sound like a trumpet blast. We have smoke and fire, just as Yahweh had previously appeared as a pillar of cloud, a pillar of smoke with fire in the middle, and fire as he led Israel out of Egypt. And we have the response of the people, which is trembling. The people tremble when they're in God's presence. So it's important that you file that inventory of sights and sounds away in your mind, because as you read the rest of the Bible, you're going to see those things pop up in many other passages. And most of the time, it is meant to make you recall what happens at Sinai, and it's saying this is a similar thing. This is God appearing. It signals a special appearance of God to judge or to authorize his representative or to give his word or to move salvation history forward in some way. Let me give you a few examples. When the tabernacle is described later, it has a lot of these same elements. It has a fiery altar. It has smoke from the altar and smoke from the incense that is burned. The courtyard curtain is a large white sheet. It looks like a cloud. And indeed, the glory cloud of Yahweh literally descends on the tabernacle the way it descends on Mount Sinai here. So all that is to show you that the tabernacle is actually a portable Mount Sinai. The reason God gives his people a portable Mount Sinai is so that Israel can carry this Sinai experience of God's presence with them as they travel through the wilderness and into the land. So they always have access to Yahweh. So the tabernacle and later the temple are portable 
Mount Sinai, where God meets with his people, just as he does here. You see a lot of the same imagery when Yahweh appears uh, later in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel has a vision of the coming of the Lord. You see it in the visions of Daniel and all over the Psalms and in the prophets. But you also see it in the New Testament. Right? Our gospel reading for today from John 12, where a voice comes from heaven and there is a sound of thunder as Jesus prophesies concerning his crucifixion. John is alluding to Mount Sinai to portray Jesus as the new Moses who speaks with the authority of God. One of the primary references to this in the New Testament is the day of Pentecost. The festival of Pentecost was already a celebration of the giving of the law at Sinai, but on that particular Pentecost, when the apostles are gathered in an upper room, itself a symbolic mountain, a high place, what happens? Acts 2.2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound, like a mighty rushing wind, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Each of the apostles is a tiny Mount Sinai on the day of Pentecost. And God comes down with a mighty sound and he descends on them in fire. And what does he do? He speaks his word to his people. Acts wants us to see the day of Pentecost as a new Sinai. So watch for this Sinai imagery throughout Scripture. Like I said, it usually signals a special appearance of God to deliver His Word, to create new worlds, and to move salvation history forward, just as He did at the Exodus. Again, verse 20. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Now, if you read carefully through this text, uh, it appears that Moses climbs all the way up and back down the mountain three separate times in this chapter. No easy task for an octogenarian, right? He's 80 years old. What's going on here? In the Bible, God always appears on high, on the top of a mountain, whether it's the Garden of Eden, which is on a mountain, or Abraham and Isaac on Mount Horeb, or Elijah on Mount Carmel, or the temple, which is built on Mount Zion, or our Lord always going up the mountain to preach the Sermon on the Mount, the Mount of Olives. Or, as I just said, in Acts, the upper room is a symbolic mountain. So God is always up. And if you want to be in God's presence, you have to ascend. If you want to receive something from God, someone has to go up there and get it. And bring it back down. Moses does this in the Exodus. We see him doing it here. The Levitical priest will continue to do this in the tabernacle, which is a symbolic mountain, with the Holy of Holies being the peak. They will go in and out of the Holy Holy of Holies and the holy place, and that symbolizes them climbing up the mountain to meet with God and coming back down to the people. Bearing the people's offerings up to God, bringing God's word back down to the people. And in the New Testament, Jesus performs this action, doesn't he? He descends from heaven to walk among us. And he goes back up to God in his ascension. He comes down to bring us the Father's word and the Father's will for life on earth. 
He ascends back into heaven in His human flesh, thereby taking all of us who are united to Him by faith with Him into the heavenly places. He is a new Moses in this. And He is a greater high priest ascending the mountain of God. So I want to skip to chapter 20 now. Here God speaks what we commonly call the Ten Commandments, but look at what the Bible calls them. Chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words. In the Hebrew, they're simply called words, the ten words. And it's good for us to remember this because all of the connections that that this makes with other things in Scripture, not least of which is the incarnate Word Himself, Jesus Christ. So these are ten words given by God at Sinai. And you may sometimes hear them referred to as the Decalogue, and that's just the Greek word for ten words. Now we think of them being carved in stone, which they will be later, but note that verse 1 says God first spoke all these words. Okay, In a minute, Moses is going to download them from the cloud onto his tablet. <laughs> Sorry, I had to fit that joke in here somewhere. But to begin with, God speaks these words. He speaks these words to the people of Israel. And when he does, it terrifies them. And they ask God not to speak to them again because they're afraid they will die if he does. So Moses will be the mediator between God and Israel, just as Christ is the mediator between God and man for us. And because of his mediation, we are not killed when we approach a holy God. In Christ, we are brought near. But the ten words, God speaks directly to Israel, and that shows you the importance of them. And God's voice is authorizing Moses as his chosen prophet. Now, verse 2 is considered the preface or preamble to the ten words. And I want you to think back to chapter 19, verse 4, when God spoke of Israel's identity as his treasured possession and their calling as a kingdom of priests. Remember how we said the first thing God spoke of was the salvation that he had already accomplished? Look how he begins the ten words. Verse 2, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. There it is again. See, it always begins with God. He is the source. He is the initiator. I am Yahweh your God. And how does he define himself? I am your God. There is a relationship here. And I am the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So it all begins with, is all founded upon the salvation that God has already accomplished on Israel's behalf. So once again, in in these ten words, we do not have a list of things to do to earn God's salvation. Salvation has already been accomplished. It is an act of grace. It is an act of undeserved favor for us. The Ten Commandments, then, are not a way to earn salvation. They are the proper response to a salvation that has already been accomplished by God. Now, of course, we could give a separate sermon on each one of these ten words, and that would be very fruitful, but we're not going to do that at this time. We're going to use kind of the wide-angle lens here, and I'm going to give you a sort of framework for thinking about all of the ten words together. I think it's common to look at the ten words as a list of restrictions, a bunch of rules. 
like the rules a fourth grade teacher might have for a classroom, right? And we essentially view it as this, don't do any of this stuff or you'll get in trouble, right? And I don't deny that there are prohibitions here and there are terrible consequences for disobeying God's word. But that's a very limited and largely negative view of the ten words. And I don't think it fully captures what's going on here at Mount Sinai. I want to suggest we view the ten words more like ten brushstrokes in a landscape painting, or ten stanzas of a poem, or ten phrasings in a symphony. In other words, pun intended, I want us to think of the ten words as a sort of imaginative vision that God is giving Israel. And I don't mean imaginative in the sense of not real. I hate when people take that word that way. I mean the ten words help Israel imagine something. The ten words help Israel imagine a society, a community, a, a world that looks vastly different than the one they currently experience. But the vision is so beautiful that it compels them to try to find that world. And it compels them to work toward that world, to become a citizen of that world, not in name only, but by taking on the habits and customs and virtues of that new world. I want us to see the ten words as an imaginative vision of the new world God is going to bring about through his chosen people. So the first word, you shall have no other gods before me. This imagines a world where Israel's allegiances are not pulled to and fro by the fickle gods of Egypt and other nations. It's a world where there is one God, Yahweh, who knows his people and is known by his people, who provides his people access to his presence and a way of approach so that they are not always wondering how to appease him. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. This word imagines a, word, a world with a real God in it. A God who is a personal God, not an object. A God who is worthy of worship because he is sovereign. He cannot be contained. He cannot be manipulated. A God who is free. And therefore, a God who is free to save. And a God who is free to love and often wayward people. You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain. This word is imagining a world where Israel is indeed a kingdom of priests. Where every Israelite acts as though he was wearing this golden nameplate that the Levitical priests wore on their foreheads, which was labeled with the words, Holy to Yahweh. They bear the name of Yahweh. That's what the Hebrew word is there, bear the name. They bear the name of Yahweh. It would be a world where Israelites do not bear that name in an empty way, but like their God, they live lives of steadfast love and faithfulness. They deliver the needy. They strive for justice so that when people see an Israelite, they see God reflected in them. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. 
This imagines a world where Israel is not enslaved to a master who keeps them under a heavy yoke, as Pharaoh did. It imagines a world where rest is valued, where rest is not only enjoyed by rulers, but freely given to those who are under their authority as well. It is a world where each week there is a day set aside for festival, a time to give thanks to God for the world he has given. Words like honor your father and mother and you shall not commit adultery. Imagine a world where families are whole, where families are safe each member seeking the good of the others rather than themselves. It imagines a world where families and tribes are not at war with one another, but seeking to protect the integrity of every other family. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. These words imagine a world where it is not every man for himself. Instead, these words imagine a world where each one is his brother's keeper, where each one seeks to protect his neighbor's life, protect his neighbor's property. It is a world where everyone works to see that everyone else is healthy and flourishing as God intends. So this is one glimpse at this new world that Yahweh is envisioning for the people of Israel. It's an imagined vision. I say imagined because it was not the world Israel had lived in up to that point. And it's not the world we live in either, is it? We live in a fallen world that is not like this. But Yahweh has called his people out of that old world. He has brought them to the mountain, to Mount Sinai, to paint them a picture of the new world that he intends to create in them, that they might be captivated by that picture. And that is, I think, a helpful way to view these ten words and the laws that follow them. They are envisioning the world that God desires to bring about. They are envisioning the proper response to the salvation God has already brought us. So brothers and sisters in Christ, God has also sent us a great prophet, our Lord Jesus. In the Gospels, we see that he also ascended a mountain and delivered a vision of God's kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the pure in heart, For they shall see God. Jesus is our mediator, speaking the word of God to us. And more than that, he is himself the word of God. He is the ten words come in the flesh. By perfectly obeying God's law, he embodies the law. Jesus is the only grown up. He's the only fully matured human being the world has ever seen, perfectly following the Father's will for humanity. He is the new world. Jesus is the new humanity envisioned in those ten words and all the law. He is the fulfillment of the law. The vision has become reality in Jesus Christ. 
Jesus descended from heaven to bring the word of God to us, to live out the ten words faithfully during his earthly ministry. And he descended to bear the penalty for our breaking of the ten words. And he did this on the cross. And he did this by giving himself over to death. But Jesus has been delivered and resurrected. And he has ascended the mountain of God once again and has taken us with him, that united to him by faith, we are welcomed into God's holy presence. So the deliverance has already been accomplished, hasn't it? Salvation has come and it is freely given to us in Jesus Christ by the grace of God. We do not obey his law in order to earn his love and favor, in order to earn our salvation. We obey his word because he has already saved us. So now we respond. We respond with faithfulness. We respond with obedience. We respond with love and with thanksgiving. We respond with right worship of God. We respond with the enjoyment of and the giving of rest. We respond by loving God and loving our neighbor as Christ loved us by His death and resurrection, and by the power of His Spirit, Jesus has made us citizens of His kingdom, citizens of His new world. And so, St. Peter quotes from our passage, and he applies the call of Israel that we learned about to us. It is our call now. He tells us that the vision of Sinai has come to rest on the church of Jesus Christ. And he says, we are his chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let's pray. God of the Exodus, who brought us out of bondage to sin and death, you have called us to be your treasured possession. Make us a kingdom of priests who obey your voice and who bear your name faithfully, that we might help others draw near to you, that all the earth would be captivated by the heavenly vision which has come to us in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.